0: Life with Jesus changes everything. It's just simply the fact. Life with Jesus changes everything. If the gospel is true, then our lives need to change wholesale. If it's true that God exists, that he made everything that is, including you, if his design and desire for you is to be his friend forever, if our first parents, Adam and Eve, fell into sin, condemnation, and curse as a result of their disobedience in the garden, And if, as a result of their original sin, every human being ever born since is born with a sin nature, born with a tendency to rebel against God, their maker, then we have a problem that lies at the root of human existence. Our good God, who is holy and cannot tolerate sin in any form, but must punish it, has created a race of human beings to be his friends forever, who have now fallen into sin, and therefore must be separate from him. And if his justice is, in fact, to be just, he must not just separate himself from them, but ultimately he must destroy them. So this is a problem. It's the problem at the root of human existence, and it's our fault. Because we sinned, and we disobeyed God. And you will know in your own life that you have an ongoing tendency to sin and to disobey God, to do what you want, to try and ascend to God's throne and make everyone else worship you. This is a problem. But God in his goodness did not allow that problem to continue. In the fullness of time, according to the scriptures, he sent his son Jesus to become a man, to live a perfect, a sinless life, to perfectly fulfill the will of the Father, and to offer himself up once for all on the cross, to suffer and die in your place for your sins, and to not stay dead, but to rise again from death the third day, Easter Sunday morning, conquering the power of Satan, sin, death, and hell forever in his body. He then appeared to his friends, hung out with them, ate some meals, and then, right in front of their eyes, ascended to the Father's right hand where he sat down, where he's sitting even now, cheering for you. He's your cheering section. And from that place, he will come again in glory someday to judge the living and the dead and to inaugurate his kingdom, which will have no end, a kingdom in which you have a place. If the gospel is true, it changes everything. The question for us is this. How comprehensively are you allowing the gospel to change your life? And this is something that you will wrestle with for the entirety of your life. Would you let the gospel change your career choice? You think you want to be this, but as the gospel presses itself upon you, you feel God saying, no, I'd like you to do that. Well, maybe, maybe I'd let the gospel change my career. How about your house? I don't mean your household, but I mean the house that you actually buy. Would any of you think it's crazy to ask the Lord, well, Lord, should we buy this house or that one? Should we live in this context or that one? Would you allow the imperative of the gospel to change your choice when it comes to buying a house? How about the way in which you manage your money? Would you allow the gospel and the imperatives that are laid into the gospel influence the way in which you spend your money? Now, this is not a sermon on money, but I will someday preach a sermon on money when we come in the text to a passage that talks about money, and we will lay money at the foot of the cross. Would you allow the gospel to influence your approach to kids? Would you have kids because of the gospel? Would you have many kids because of the gospel? Would you have fewer kids because of the gospel? How would you raise those kids in light of the gospel? Would you allow the gospel to change even that? How about your marriage? Would you allow the gospel to change your marriage? Sure, I'd allow the gospel to change my marriage. No problem. What if the gospel asked you to do the thing that you were wired not to want to do? How about that? Now everyone's bum just went tight. You're like, (laughs) dang it. I knew he was going. Dang it. What exactly are we talking about here, Todd? Let me show you. Here's 1 Peter 3, 1 to 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word, the poetry, hey, is beautiful, by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair or the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So six verses to wives. Verse 7, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I'm pretty stressed about preaching this passage. I had a hard day yesterday. You know, I tend to get grumpy when I'm like, there's nothing I can do to take the sting out of this one. And I was talking about it with Nikki, and she's like, well, you didn't write it. <laughs> and, you know, I could take that route, but that's cheap because I believe it, and I practice it. Okay? I believe it, and I practice it. So for me to say, I did write it's it lame. Verse 1, likewise. Likewise. What's this likewise referring to? It's referring to the end of chapter 2, wherein the gospel of Christ is laid out. In fact, I should read it to you. It's so powerful. Ah. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, speaking of Jesus, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Huh. For you were straying like sheep, but now you return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So, likewise, in the same way that Jesus laid his life down for you. So good old Peter plays the gospel card right off the top because he knows what he's about to teach is difficult. And I believe, of course, the Holy Spirit knew that what Peter was writing down here would be caused to enter into the canon of Scripture and would therefore be preached in church after church after church after church after church for generations. Right down to this day, when the Holy Spirit knew that you would sit here listening to me preach this passage that Peter wrote. And so he pulls the gospel card. In light of what Jesus has done for you, in the same way that Jesus laid his life down for you, He pulls the gospel card right off the top to force you to wrestle with it, to ask yourself the question, do I really believe this? Because if you do and you're a wife, your ego is going to have to die. Now, let me say this off the top. I repeat this later in the sermon, but it begs mentioning now. 94% of North Americans will at some point in their life marry. So if you're neither a wife yet, okay, nor think you'll ever be one, the statistics say otherwise. 94% of you will at some point Be married, that's Gallup poll. So this may not be applicable today, but you should probably store it away for the day that you do wake up one day as Mrs. So-and-so. If you believe the gospel in your wife, your ego is going to have to die. Why? Look at verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. (laughs) It's an ugly word. Subject. Nobody likes the idea of subjugation. Yes, got that right. Subject <clears throat> Doesn't say that in the message. <laughs> okay, a couple things on subjugation. We are all subject to somebody already. We're subject to many things. Okay, so you're all subject to God. I'm subject to God. You're subject to God. We're all subjected to God subjugated under his rule. We're subject to the laws of nature. right? If I were to run and jump off the stage and belly flop on the floor, it would be a bad situation. Right? I am subject to the laws of nature. So are you. Okay, I can only do what I can do, and I can't do what I can't do. You are subject to our government, which is sometimes miserable. I'm having a hard time with the election presently. I'm subject to these people, and it doesn't make me happy. Okay, complete freedom is a sinful myth. Okay, the drive towards complete freedom is what drove Adam and Eve to sin against God in the first place. Okay, so if you have a reaction, like... And I have a reaction, and I'm not a wife. Okay, I read this, and it it, it ticks me off. It upsets me. I don't like it. Okay, we're all subject to something already. So complete freedom is a sinful myth. We're also all subject to the gospel. Right? Jesus trumps everything. It's terrible that trump has now become an ugly word. I couldn't find a better word. So forget that example down south. But Jesus trumps everything. Right, You're subject to the gospel. You can neither rise above it nor sink beneath it. Okay, the gospel rules you. You're subject to the gospel. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess someday that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2.10. Confess means to joyfully acclaim. This means that everybody will one day joyfully acclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in subjecting yourself to Jesus' rule now, you're just getting a head start. Don't get it twisted. right? Nothing special about you, really. You're just getting a head start. Someday, everybody's going to bow the knee to Jesus. You're doing it now. So, exactly what are we talking about here, Todd? Likewise, wives, be subject to your husbands. Hupotasomenai is the Greek word. It means this, a voluntary. Hear that. Okay, a voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, assuming responsibility, and carrying a burden. I want you to celebrate both the difficulty and the beauty of, Of scriptural words. Because we like the back half of the definition of that word, don't we? We can all get with it. Cooperating, we're all with that. Assuming responsibility, that speaks to agency. Right? You have the agency to assume responsibility, to carry a burden. It's just the first part we don't like so much giving in. I don't like that part. I'm not even a wife. That's what it means. To be subject, to voluntarily give in, cooperate, assume responsibility, and carry a burden. All right, we'll do it your way. I'll help you, and I'll share responsibility and the burden of this choice with you. That's how Peter is exhorting Christian wives to relate to their husbands. It's very challenging. How often have you heard a wife say, That was his decision. I wouldn't have made that decision. Right? A Christian wife doesn't do that. A Christian wife, even if it wasn't her decision, cooperates with the decision, assumes responsibility for the decision, she assumes the agency given to her by God, and she carries the burden with her husband. It's heavy duty. Now, let's note a few things here. When Peter is saying, wives, be subject to your own husbands, this does not mean all women are subject to all men period does not mean that okay so this is not reason for patriarchy this is not reason for men to dominate or rule over women okay this does not say all women be subject to all men this is one wife be subject to her husband this does not mean all wives be subject to all husbands so your wife does not need to relate to me in this way. Only my wife needs to relate to me in this way. Not all women to all men, not all wives to all husbands. One wife to her husband. Well, then how do we relate to each other otherwise? Thankfully, 1 Timothy 5, verse 2 helps us. If you're dealing with an older man, you treat him as a father. Okay, so anytime I relate to an older man, I try to treat him as a father. If he does something stupid, I do not rebuke him harshly because the scripture forbids it. If I'm dealing with an older woman, I treat her as a mother. Happy Mother's Day. I treat you as I treat my mother. If I'm dealing with a younger man, I treat him as my brother, which means i whoop him. <laughs> my brother and I used to fight. We still fight quite a bit. Like, not bad fighting, but we just wrestle, you know? Like, we just go out in the backyard and beat on each other. So young men in this church, it's good. Expect to get whooped, right? I expect it too, right? Younger men, you treat as brothers. Younger women, you treat as sisters. This is beautiful, right? This is a recipe for how Christian men in a church can still relate to younger women without sinning sexually, right? Because you love your sister, you treat her well, but there's absolutely no sexual undercurrent there. It's your sister. So aren't we thankful that the New Testament gives us an ethic, a practical ethic for how to relate to one another? I'm thankful, But your own husband, because of the gospel, Peter is telling you you need to treat him like he's in charge. You're like, what if he's an idiot? Verse 1 and 2. Even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Next screen. Okay, sorry, that's good. You were right, Lukey. I was wrong. What if he's an idiot? Even if some are stubborn in unbelief, it's literally what it's saying here in the original translation, practice lifestyle evangelism by respecting him practically and living a life that is pure. Gospel is difficult, right? Nobody said Christianity was easy. It's very countercultural, is it not? It's kind of the opposite of what many of your peers would think is the proper way to relate to an idiot husband. I'm deeply grieved, I don't know if you are, but every time I hear casual contempt creep into advertising, have you heard those kind of ads? The woman is always talking about her idiot husband, the idiot husband is always doing idiotic things. It's a cliche because it's common to the point of being a cliche. In culture, when a husband is an idiot, we write him off, he's an idiot idiot. In the Gospel, when a husband is an idiot, when he will not submit to the Gospel, stubborn in unbelief means he's stubborn in not believing the Gospel of Christ. What does a Christian wife do? She wins him by her exemplary life. It's powerful. And this is a promise from the Scriptures. That when you as a wife live an exemplary kind of life, you will win him. You'll win him by respecting him and living a life that is pure. But he hasn't earned my respect. Or he lost my respect years ago. So let's filter that through the gospel. Is any of us worthy of respect in and of ourselves? The answer is no. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Each of us, in and of ourselves, left to our own devices, are hopelessly lost, without hope, bereft, far from God. In every way alone. So none of us are truly worthy of respect. Only Jesus is. So even if your husband is a fool, you can respect your husband because God told you to, and God is worthy of your respect. You see that? This was echoed in the last chapter and was telling all of us to be subject to the government. Knowing that ultimately we're subject to God, who will one day make all things right. And so now Peter builds on that idea and says to wives that even if their husband is being difficult, they should respect him because God has commanded it and God is worthy of your respect. So how do I do that practically? Maybe one small step at a time. Nobody's all bad. You ever met somebody totally despicable? Like never. (laughs) Right. <laughs> what an example. I remember watching like, lost documentary footage from the Holocaust. And there was a whole family movie sequence of Hitler in one of his private villas with his family and friends, dancing with like, a little girl and little boy, eating, drinking, and being merry. This evil monster. Now, that's a very extreme example. But surely you can find one thing with which to begin. We learned this from a friend of ours who for years has been on a journey of learning to respect her husband again. Without going into the details, she has reason to disrespect him. So didn't she like write down one thing every day? And she put it in a jar. She said like, one day it was just like, he has great arms. (laughs) He has great arms. And you're like, that's kind of pathetic. I know, but it's one good thing. You put that in the jar and then you put the next thing in the jar and the next thing in the jar and you know, six months later you've had a few reasons accumulate. It's powerful. Not everyone's all bad. While you're doing the heavy lifting of letting the gospel drive this impossible change in you, keep at it and stop trying to impress people. Look at verses 3 through 6. This is powerful. Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair or putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Do not let your adornment be external, neither the braiding of hair, or the putting on of gold jewelry, Or clothing, the clothing that you wear. You can see how some pretty severe and weird expressions of Christianity came out of proof texting, these verses. Except they missed the part about clothing, right? So you have all these severe expressions of Christianity where we force our women to look really plain. Don't braid their hair, can't wear jewelry, but they're wearing clothes. Right? No braided hair, no gold jewelry, no clothes. (laughs) kind of defeats the purpose of a plain woman in church. (laughs) Stupid Bible interpreters. So annoying, right? Because you're bringing your bias to it, right? You're using this passage to put women in their place. You're sinning against God and against his gospel. What's this talking about here? It's talking about high-class affectations. Okay, this braiding of hair was the kind of extravagant process that could only be done by a household slave that would take hours to do that only a wealthy woman could do. And then she would leave her house after her slaves working for hours to braid her hair into this elaborate getup and then she would parade through town so that everybody could see how fabulous she was. All right? This is, this is, this is talking red carpet Christianity here. All right? This is talking Hollywood red carpet excess. The wretched excess that we see. I can't even watch that stuff anymore. Look at me, I'm so rich and glorious and fabulous and awesome, and you're so crappy. Okay, that's what this is talking about. All right? So, braid your hair, we'll celebrate you. Right? Celebrate your beauty, we celebrate your awesomeness, we celebrate it, we thank God for you. We love to look upon you, we see in you the image of God, we see in you the memory of our Mother Eve, and you are great and glorious and beautiful to behold all you wonderful women. Right, you are why Adam burst into song when God gave him a wife. Said, "Surely now this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Woo-hoo! She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man." It's literally rendered in verse. You make us sing. You bring joy to the world. God forbid we should have a world without women in it. Oh, I want to go see Jesus right away. Take me to where the ladies are. Help me, Lord. But exhibitionism, showing off, flaunting your status, we could do without any of that. Literally, verse 3 says, or the clothing system. (laughs) The clothing system. Peter's reminding you, ladies, not to buy into the materialist system. You got to keep up with no Joneses no more. Right? You're great and wonderful and awesome, just as God made you. You don't got to impress anybody. You're amazing. We celebrate you. You're beautiful to behold. I'll say it again. We see in you the image of our Creator. We see in you the memory of our Mother Eve. You're awesome. You don't have to do anything to enhance your worth, your beauty, your valuableness. You're amazing. Why? Because your worth is rooted in God. Verse 4, But rather, let your dormant be what? The hidden person of the heart, which in God's sight is very precious. Again, it comes down to God. If the story about Him is true, if He made you, if He literally formed you in your mother's womb, He knows everything about you. His opinion of you is the only one that matters. This is the clear lesson of our shared history of faith God is the gospel, and only His story matters. And only He drives right behavior. Look at verse 6. Here, Peter appeals to our matriarchs. You've been getting to know them in our patriarch series. We go back to the patriarchs and the matriarchs this coming January to tell the story of Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. So you've been getting to know some of these women, whom Peter lauds here in verse 6. This is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. Verse 6, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. i got to finish here. You know what I find astonishing here? Not that Sarah called Abraham Lord. That would have been very common in that day. It would have been very common even in Roman society. It's not common today, so you don't need to call your husband Lord. I don't think that's the point here. Lord, oh, it's so terrifying. Let's not do that. Let's not do that. What I find amazing is that the faith of the matriarchs allowed them to endure fear without it driving them to dismay. I haven't pointed out to you times when the English translation falls down. This is one of those times. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. You're like, do not fear anything that is frightening. It's kind of a misnomer because if it wasn't frightening, I wouldn't fear it in the first place. What does this really mean? It really means this. And do not fear anything with dismay. That'll preach good. Do not fear anything with dismay. We're all afraid of things. Some of us are afraid of many things. Sometimes that fear can drive you to dismay. And so great is our aversion to dismay that we'll do anything, including trying to control everything in order to avoid it. How many women do you know who are highly controlling? Seems to me, from my limited practice and experience, and also from the clear testimony of Scripture, that more often than not, a high controller is really afraid. They're afraid of dismay. They're so afraid of it, in fact, that they seek to control everything. And the problem with seeking to control everything is it's idolatrous. You're seeking to put yourself on God's throne because you think you can do a better job than Him. You don't need to do that anymore because the matriarchs, yes, suffered fear, but it did not drive them to dismay. If the gospel is true, you never need to ever again fear to the point of dismay. If the gospel of Christ is true, you don't ever need to let fear control you ever again. You can trust Jesus entirely, and that entire trusting is what enables you to voluntarily give in to your husband, cooperating with him, assuming responsibility, and carrying the burden of your life together. You see, it's it's because of Jesus. And what about those husbands? Thank God we've come to verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I'll be less careful with the men. Likewise, okay, because of the gospel, and in the same way that it impacts your wives... Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to them as the weaker vessel, since you are heirs with them. They are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. How many men have you ever heard say the following? I see no evidence of God's hand in my life. Show me. Or how many men have you heard say this? God's ignoring me. I keep praying, but God's not listening. How about this one? If God was real, you'd think He'd show up once in a while? You ever heard any men say that? Don't show me your hand, but have you? I've heard lots of men say that. So many men are hard-hearted. Why? Because life is hard. OK? I agree. Life is hard, and this makes many men hard-hearted. If you are a man here today, especially if you are a husband, have you ever felt like God has abandoned you? Maybe it's because of how you treat your wife. In fact, no maybe needed. It's because of how you're treating your wife. Likewise, husbands, live with them in an understanding way. I love the impossibility of Scripture it is impossible to understand my wife. Could I get an amen? I don't understand her at all. I've been married to her for 21 years, and she still does stuff that I just, I don't understand. And what's beautiful about the Scripture here is that it's putting a whooping on me because it's not telling me to tolerate her. It's not telling me to put up with her. It's not telling me to ignore her. It's telling me to understand her. The very thing I find most difficult is the thing it's telling me to do. I do believe this is an echo of the thing he's telling the wives to do, which is to submit, which is the one thing a wife does not want to do. Why? This goes right back to the curse. When God curses Eve as a result of their sin, he says to her as part of that curse sequence, and your desire will be for your husband to rule over him. So every daughter of Eve ever born has this inbuilt desire to conquer her husband. So it's no mistake that Peter says, and you're going to submit to him. You're like, that's the one thing I don't want to do. Exactly. And he's going for the husband's jugular as well, because he's telling them not to put up with you, not to tolerate you, but to understand you, which is it's impossible. <laughs> but because of Jesus, you owe it to her. You owe it to her because of Jesus to understand her, to do the heavy lifting, however long it takes, of coming to the point where you understand her. That means that you relate to her in a way that is as easy as the way in which you relate to yourself. Because you understand what you do intuitively. You don't even have to think about what you do. You need to be such a husband that you treat your wife in a way that is so good you don't even think about it. Because you have come to the point where you understand her. Ooh, that'll preach good right there. Because of Jesus, you owe it to her. Show her honor, which is what? Value. What have you said or done lately that makes her feel valued? And men, I'm here to remind you this morning that you value what you spend time on. So if you look at your calendar, that will tell you your value system. Okay, look at your calendar for the last month. That is an illustration of your value system. Where does your wife figure in that value system? If she does not figure highly in that value system, you need to repent immediately and value her. Show her honor as the weaker vessel. God, that was abused by my grandparents' generation. I don't mean God like in vain, I mean God like, Lord, have mercy. Oh, the woman is the weaker vessel. Somebody slap that man. (laughs) This just means you're stronger than her. Period. That's it. So don't ever use your strength as a means to get leverage over her. Never. Never. This would have been radical to Roman men, to the pater familias who had power of life and death over his family, can do whatever he wants, and was in the habit of using his strength to dominate the Apostle of Christ, Peter the Just, says, no more. You value her. You honor her. And never, ever, ever use your strength to gain leverage over her. And most importantly, I believe, in our day and age, enjoy her. Since they are joint enjoyers of the allotment with you of the grace of life. That's what it says in the Greek. Heirs means enjoyers of the allotment. We're your team. I'm almost done. Do you see that? Since they are joint enjoyers of the allotment with you of the grace of life. All the good things in life that you don't deserve, and you don't deserve anything good. Because you're a sinner, guilty of sinning against God. You deserve wrath and damnation. Okay, that's what I deserve too. So that bacon and eggs you had for breakfast this morning, that's God's good gift to you every good thing that you enjoy in your life that you don't deserve, you are meant to enjoy it through her and with her. Because you're so needy as a man that God looked on your first father, Adam, in the garden and saw that he was useless by himself. Well, not useless, but was lonely and needed a helper fit for him. In the Hebrew, kenegdo, one who could go toe-to-toe with him, stand face-to-face with him. Woo! A best friend. Someone with whom to subdue the earth and fill it. Okay? Husbands, you are meant to enjoy your wives. Nothing crushes a wife's soul more than realizing that her husband doesn't enjoy her anymore. I would ask for an amen, but I wouldn't want you to say it. Husbands, out of reverence for Christ and His gospel, enjoy your wives. Enjoy them. Celebrate them. Pursue them. Glory in them. Make them your highest priority. You hear me? Enjoy your wives. There should be absolutely nothing in life you enjoy more than your wife. I'll say it again. There should be absolutely nothing in your life you enjoy more than your wife. If you like your hobbies better, never get married. Never. Never. Okay? Enjoy your wife first and foremost. Ladies, if you are really sold out on preferring the illusion of autonomy, don't ever get married. Because autonomy is a myth, it's an illusion. If you bring that illusion into marriage, you're going to be miserable and your husband will eventually grow to hate you. Husbands, enjoy your wives. Wives, Kiss your desire for autonomy goodbye. See, 94% of you will get married. For 94% of us, these are going to be real issues, real struggles, real challenges, and real opportunities, which is why you better get the gospel quick. Because life with Jesus, it changes everything, especially marriages.